If you are new with us, um, welcome. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. It's one of the reasons we exist as a community is to invite people to the dinner table of Christ. And uh, that's what this is. This is like a weekly family dinner that we have. And uh, if you're not yet a Christian, this may feel strange to you. Uh, I'm going to stand up here and teach for a bit. <laughs> and you're going to be like, wow, that family talks a lot. Uh, <laughs> and they talk about uh, big ideas and strange things. Not a lot of talk about weather here. Um, but we get into it. And so we're so glad that you're here. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, joining us at our uh, family table, getting to know who we are. That conversation was uh, just a great uh, appetizer to who we are as a community. We hope that you find a seat at this table and feel like this table could be your family table, wherever you are in your walk with Christ. And so um, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors. So glad to, uh, to get to be here and a privilege to get to open the Word of God and teach from it today. So we are going to be back in our series in 1 Corinthians. We took a break during the summer to study the Psalms, which are the songbook of Jesus, but now we're back to 1 Corinthians, which is a letter that was written from the Apostle Paul, who was one of the original uh, 12 apostles who helped start the Jesus movement after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and then Jesus uh, sent out the apostles. Apostle means sent one, and they went to start churches all over the Greco-Roman world, um, all over the Mediterranean world, and, and Paul was uh, one of those called and sent by Jesus. And so he went to the to town of Corinth, which is not far from Athens in Greece, and was a major uh, so, uh, um, sort of cultural and uh, economic hub in the Greco-Roman world. Um, it was, there was a really easy place for ships to, to come and go from, and so oftentimes from the Near East, ships would stop in Corinth, uh, pick up goods, sort of, they didn't have fuel back then, but refuel in a sense, uh, before they finished the trip all the way to Rome. And so it was one of those cities that port cities happened to be back in the day, and I think still are today. Uh, all the things that come with your idea of Pirates of the Caribbean uh, were probably happening in <laughs> Corinth. It was quite a progressive city in that way. Um, and we've studied that throughout this book about how some of those cultural things had crept into the church and how Jesus really calls his people to be set apart, to be different from the world in certain ways, uh, not separated from the world, but separated from the ways of the world. And so we've called this series Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. So Christ's wisdom is, isn't obvious to us. Uh, it's actually something we learn uh, as we spend time with him and we read about his life and we study uh, this book that he has, that God has inspired and that Jesus walked out perfectly in his life. And so his wisdom is peculiar. Um, it's not obvious to us. And so uh, particularly if you're not yet a Christian or you're new, an, an, a newly um, decided follower of Jesus, uh, some of the wisdom of Christ is peculiar. And you might not understand why he calls us to live that way. Only after living it out do you begin to realize that it is the way of the Lord and that it's good both for us and for others. And so uh, we've been talking about that for many, many months now, and now we're just going to finish out the letter. There's 15 chapters, and uh, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12 today. Uh, so we're going to see how this letter ends as Paul encourages the church that he started uh, years before. So if you've got a Bible, grab it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, um, no problem. There's some in the seat back in front of you, just underneath the seat. You'll find one. If you've got to ask somebody near you to pass one down, that's fine. If you do grab that Bible, we're on page 1018 in those black pew Bibles that look like this. So we're going to tackle the whole chapter today, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, to begin, um, what I'd like to just say, uh, or what I'd like to do is recall for you um, how we started this series back in January. And we started this series with two big analogies. Uh, one analogy was taken by an artist in our church and turned into an art installation. So that's, if you notice the birds, and you're like, why are there a thousand birds flying? They're not real birds, don't worry. But paper birds, um, we shared at the beginning that the church, if everyone's in tune with the Holy Spirit and following the peculiar wisdom of Christ, 
we begin to move in strange but beautiful patterns, just like European starling birds. If you've never seen a video of their, they're called murmurations. They move in uh, such a peculiar way, but all in sync. And it's beautiful and mesmerizing, and you can't take your eyes off of it. And that's what the church can and should be, as we represent for the world what God's kingdom is like. But we'll only do that if we're all in tune and in step with the peculiar wisdom of Jesus. So the first analogy was the birds. The second analogy we used was the marching band. And I, wanna, I want us to go back and remember the marching band today. Um, the marching band analogy is not so different from the bird analogy. It's a lot of people working together in step to create something beautiful. And when certain members or certain parts of the band... Uh, don't seek to be in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ, guess what happens? It stops looking beautiful and it starts to look chaotic. And it starts to be out of order. And it no longer glorifies our God. It no longer shows that we have a peculiar wisdom that leads to beauty. But we start to look like most of the world, chaotic, disordered, out of sync, out of love. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to do in chapters 12, 13, and 14. He's going to spend three chapters. Now, he didn't write them as chapters, but we've come after the fact and put chapters to help us navigate. But he's going to spend three chapters worth of of ink talking about the disorder of the gathering in Corinth. When Christians came together, it was chaotic. It was out of order. And if others looked in and saw, he'll say, it was not glorifying to Christ. It was not something that would draw people in and and make them want to stay for a family meal. It was actually something that would repulse them or move them away. And so Paul says, that's not the way of Christ. So that's the big argument. And, and, And I love the marching band analogy because it helps us remember how this works. And so I I just found online this week a little article written by a marching band aficionado. We have a few marching band aficionados in our church. Shout out Augusta DeVries. And uh, I'm hoping you're excited because I know you love this analogy. But I found Will Fenton's his name. And he, he wrote, he, he, you know, for, first thing actually that pops up on Google. So don't think I did a lot of work here. <laughs> first thing that pops up on Google when you type in how many members of a marching band or how many instruments. And so he wrote this little article. I'm going to read it to you because this is somebody that really loves marching bands. And I've come to really love marching bands. So he writes this. Imagine the sound of a hundred instruments synchronized together to create a symphony of vibrations. It's good, right? We've all come to love marching bands. Well, from your position, (laughs) Will. But I want you to all come to love marching bands too. We've all come to love marching bands, livening up parades, sporting events, racetracks with their flamboyant uniforms, cohesive music, and of course, the acrobats and dancers. Marching bands are a group of musicians playing their instruments while parading. Astonishingly, a marching band can have over 300 instruments. The official marching band of the University of Michigan, sorry Augusta, has over 340 instruments. Augusta went to Wisconsin including 106 woodwinds, 34 percussions, 202 brass instruments. Now, as unfathomable as it may seem, the performance of a marching band improves as the number of marching band instruments grows. With added instruments, the group can ring more tunes and add more grain and vibrancy. This guy loves marching bands. A marching band can be as small as 20 or 30. We've experienced that at Sedaris. But it can be as large as 340, parentheses, maybe more, Will Fenton says. Of course more, Will. Depending on the budget and availability of musicians, almost all the instruments featured are portable. I love that, portable. You can take them wherever you go. But some bands have large immovable instruments, such as an organ or a keyboard, not our band. Since marching bands perform live in crowded areas, they need a solid percussion setup to hold the rhythm. I love this. They need a solid percussion setup to hold the rhythm. The brass section balances the music with the woodwinds adding tunes. 
More like playing the part of a vocalist, says Will. Over the past couple years, marching bands have added more to their performances using twirlers and majorettes to demonstrate baton twirling skills alongside the musicians. What's he saying? There's some that don't actually play a musical instrument. There's other gifts needed. While the musicians harmonize together, the majorettes and the acrobat dancers play a more interactive role with the audience. The entire group is usually headed by a drum major who maintains the rhythm and gives marching orders. While there is no limitation to how many marching band instruments you can have, there are some instruments that a marching band can't do without. And yes, we're talking about marching bands, not the Church of God, yet. Will ends his amazing article, thanks Will, with a list of marching band instruments that one might need should they put together a marching band. I won't read you the whole list. It's long. It's comprehensive. But I do want to read the little italicized uh, footnote he puts in before his list. Will says this. Oh, and heads up, exclamation point, there may be some products which I recommend for which I may make a small commission at no extra cost to you. <laughs> All recommendations are genuine and or verified by myself. That's hilarious. <laughs> yes, I love marching bands, and that's why I've written that article. But listen, guys, Will's got uh, to eat, too. And so if he makes a commission off of my recommendation of his article, good for Will. I just thought that's so funny that uh, Will adds a little, I am going to make a commission off of these recommendations. No commission for me off of the recommendations I'll make today. But uh, I do want to tell you about the gifts and the instruments that God has made available to his people for his work in the world. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And the amazing thing to understand when we're talking about a marching band is that you really got to consume it live. Imagine the difference of an audio recording versus a live performance of the marching band. For one, in an audio recording, you can't see the non-musical instruments. You can't see the twirlers or the majorettes or the drum major. And no matter how good the audio recording is, you can't capture the visual dynamism of 300 people marching in unison, knowing when to turn. And, and it, isn't it amazing? Next time you're at a football game or a sporting event, don't go to the concessions, don't go to the restroom when the marching band is playing. If you knew how hard they worked and how much they practiced, enjoy the beauty that is their harmony. You gotta experience it live. Now one question I want to just be ringing around in your ear during our time of teaching here is this. What makes the playing of an instrument really good? For those of you who have been in a band, you probably know the answer. It has something to do with air and how you use the air of your lungs. So where does the air come from? Or might I say, where is the best air and how do I get access to it? So my goal today is that you would totally understand this marching band analogy and how it is about the church and that you would totally understand that there's no way that you can make the argument that even if you had the best marching band and you had the best world-class audio recording system and you put all the best hits of this band and then cranked the recording of that band on world-class speakers at college stadiums around the country, there is no way to ever come close to replicating the beauty of the live performance. That's what I'm hoping to convince you of. That actually, that it happens live, in person, in action, with all these people working together, that that's the most beautiful thing that could be created. And no audio recording, video recording can capture that beauty. Not perfectly. In fact, not even close. True beauty is in collective creativity. So here we go. Let's study 
1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now what you're going to see as we read this is that Paul is just starting an argument that takes him three chapters. We're not going to go through all three chapters today, but I want you to be aware of the one bigger argument that he's making. We're just going to read the first chapter of that argument, but he has a bigger structure. And here's the bigger structure that Paul is actually, this is the big argument he's trying to make. Paul is saying this, and he's talking about when they gather together as a church community, okay? He's not talking about the individual lives of the believers. He's saying when we gather together. Paul's going to say this, because it is creating division within the community, because it is hurting individual people of the community, and because it is compromising your witness to the watching world, When you gather together, stop treating the more flashy gifts, and specifically he's talking about the gifts of tongues, which is speaking an angelic language that no one else can understand unless they have the gift of interpretation. So he's saying, stop treating those more flashy gifts as more important or more special than all the other gifts. That gift is just one single gift among a variety of gifts that God gives to his church, to his people, for the edification of the church and for moving the mission of God forward in the world. That's his big argument over the next three chapters. In order to make that argument, he's going to give us and refresh our minds and give us hopefully new hearts to see Four propositional truths that undergird that argument. So he's going he's gonna to start by teaching us four things that he's just assuming of why it should be so obvious that we don't make any gift the gift. Whatever gift a church happens to make. In Corinth, it happened to be the gift of tongues. In other churches, it could be the gift of teaching or preaching. In other churches, it could be the gift of music. In other churches, it could be other gifts. But he's going to say, don't do that. It's so obvious to me, and these are the four presuppositional truths or, or foundational truths that make my argument pretty easy. Here's what he's going to do. In verses 1 to 3, he's going to give you the first truth. He's going to say something like this. He's going to say, hey, all other religions or religious groups that you Corinthians know about most of them also have some display of supernatural expression. So what he's going to say is actually some of the flashy things you see and highlight in your church, other religious movements seem to have similar types of expressions. So he's going to say be careful to, to be overly swayed by the spectacular. Because in Corinth, this kind of stuff was actually happening all over the place. So the truth is this. There are other spiritual powers in the world. We know this. So be careful of making the unintelligible spiritual expression the most important. That's the first truth. The second truth. This is going to come in verses 4 to 11. He's going to say something like this. There are a variety of God-given spiritual gifts, but all of them come from the same God through the Holy Spirit. So the truth is this, variety of gifts, but only one Holy Spirit, one Holy Spirit, as opposed to other spirits. See Proposition 1, there are other spirits in the world, but only one Holy Spirit who is from God, but a variety of gifts. Truth number three, that's going to come in verses 12 to the end of the chapter. He's going to say something like this, these gifts are given to individuals, so each individual is important. Or maybe better said, vital to the healthy operation of the body of Christ, which is the church. So every individual is important because God gives the gifts to individuals. So the truth goes something like this. The church is one body made up of many members, all of whom we need. Truth number four. That's going to be chapter 13, which we'll talk about next week. All of chapter 13 is propositional truth number four. goes something like this. The greatest gift we are given by God is the ability 
to love like God. So the truth, you could say it like this. Another way to say it would be, love is the greater gift when compared to any gift. So if you have any gift, but you do not have love, that is not from God. That's next week. (laughs) Stay tuned. So then Paul will go on to explain from there on out how these propositional truths undergird his argument that we should never elevate any one gift over and above any other gift. And in in the case of the Corinthians, he's going to make the argument specifically about the gift of speaking in tongues. So we'll get to that later. We'll talk a little bit about it today. But that's the context in which chapter 12 comes, in which he's trying to help us see the framework of what God is doing in the world. Because if we don't understand then we, that, we won't understand why he's telling us to be careful about this gift of tongues, okay? So that is the overarching. So what, I, I wanted to do that up front so that when I read this very long chapter, you can follow along with his argumentation, okay? So here we go. Let's read together now. If you've got a Bible, look. We'll put it up on the screen too, but let's read together. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, non-Christians, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says God is cur- or Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. There are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, To another, a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the performing of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, interpretation of tongues. One and the same Spirit is active in all these gifts, distributing to each person as He wills. So God will decide where the gifts go. For just as a body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, and, and sorry, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for, the reason, or it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, It is not, for that reason, any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. I love that. And if there were all the same part, where would the body be? Stairs Church doesn't need a bunch of me. Where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker, seem weaker, imply seem there, seem weaker, are actually indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we should clothe these with greater honor, and our unrespectable parts 
should be, I'll add, treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Let me just insert. It's easy to see me standing here in the light on the stage and not see the kids' ministers ministering to our kids and to think, wow, Dave, no, this is what he's saying. I don't need to be honored. Now, don't dis- please don't dishonor me, but, but I don't need to be celebrated. Those that aren't seen need to be more celebrated than that which is seen. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if, some, if, some, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ. I mean, we can just, we can just slide right over. You are the body of Christ. Are you feeling the weight of that? You are the body of Christ. And individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administering, and various kinds of tongues. Now he's purposely putting various kinds of tongues at the end of that list, just because in Corinth, they tended to put it at the first place in the list. And we'll get to this in a second. That list is not a list of hierarchy of value or importance. It's a list of order. I'll talk about that in a second. It's just like these things need to happen in this order for a church to come alive. Then he goes on to say, are all of you apostles? Answer, no. Are all of you prophets? Of course not, no. Are all of you teachers? Of course not, no. Do all of you do miracles? Of course not, no. Do all of you have gifts of healing? Of course not, no. Do all of you speak in other tongues? Of course not, no. Do all interpret tongues? Of course not, no. Then he says, but desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Now, when he says greater gifts, he's not talking about being an apostle or a teacher. He's actually talking about the gift of the less naturally honored roles. And the the reason I know that so he says that in verse 31. Look back in, thir- in verse 24. This is just a little, how do we study the Bible? In verse 24 it says, Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable. So he's going to use the same word. He said, desire the greater gifts, meaning the less honorable. Honorable by who? By the world around you. By even those in the church that tend to think maybe those more visible public gets to talk for a few minutes every week, gifts, seek the more less honorable ones. That's the greater gift. Then he said, I'm going to show you a better way, a better way to do church. And that's when he goes into his whole passage on what? Love. Loving like God loves. Sacrificial, patient, kind love and how that plays out. We'll talk about that next week. But one thing I, I want to just read past into next week a little bit because this is all connected in Paul's mind he didn't put the chapter titles or the subtitles so he goes on right to say and I will show you a better way then chapter 13 verse 1 he says if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love what am I think band analogy marching band I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and I can guarantee if any of you have been in the band and you had a rogue symbolist Boom! <laughs> you know, like, wrong time. Wrong time. Boom! <laughs> you know, it's like, stop. You know, maybe you should try pottery. Okay, so... See, see, it's all right there. If we don't have love, but we're seeking to elevate ourselves, we become like a noisy instrument. We might make a lot of noise, but we won't actually serve the mission of Christ, which is a mission of what? Love. Okay. 
So let's break this down even further. Verses 1 to 3. Did you catch it? When I first read this, I didn't quite see what Paul was saying. A little bit more study, a little help of some scholars helps me see this. So he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. So they've asked him about spiritual gifts. How do we use them within the church? How do we organize? And he's saying, well, not how you're doing it now. Because right now you're disordered, you're noisy. People can't actually experience the beauty of Christ. So let me help you. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. So there's a loving tone here. He's not angry. He's saying, you've got this wrong, and I want to help you get it right. He says, verse 2, Now you know that when you were pagans, you used to be enticed and led astray by mute idols. Now what is he talking about? Okay. Then he says, Therefore I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God, that is the Holy Spirit, will ever say Jesus is cursed. Clearly there's people in, his commu- in their community who are saying when Jesus was hung on the cross, he was cursed by God. Not true. So Paul's saying anybody that says that, no matter what kind of spiritual mojo they got, no matter how full of something they are, that ain't the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit convicts the heart that Jesus Christ is what? Lord. And actually, you won't be able to say that with honesty unless you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. And so what is he pointing at here? Remember, I told you Corinth was a wild place. And there were people worshiping idols that were having quite the fancy party. And there was quite a lot of spiritual ecstasy happening, is what it seems. And what is spiritual ecstasy kind of like? It's kind of like the gift of tongues. Because if you go study the book of Acts, when the Spirit fell on the apostles in the upper room, what happened? They began to speak in other languages that they'd never learned, and the people watching said, look, they're all drunk. (laughs) That's what they said. And Peter steps up front, probably up on a rock or something, and the Apostle Peter says, my friends, they're not drunk. Not in the way you're drunk. Not with the spirits you got. They've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And he he goes on to say, plus it's only 9 a.m. in the morning. (laughs) It's like the funniest line in Scripture. Who gets drunk at 9 a.m.? Most college football games don't even start until 10. So he's, he's saying, it's obviously not that they're drunk already. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's no doubt that there, are, there is spiritual ecstasy that can happen that is not from the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. And Paul is reminding them of that lest they accidentally allow people who might even be saying Jesus was cursed and teaching really bad theology about what Christ accomplished on the cross just because they have an ability to conjure up some spirit. And he's saying, that's probably not the spirit of God because they would never be able to say Jesus is cursed. You see see what's going on here? So he's just saying, be careful. And then he's going to say, and one of the great ways to not be taken for the fool, to not give people power that shouldn't have power, Remember, as we've studied this, a lot of false teachers, one of the great ways is to make sure that all the gifts are celebrated in your community because God gives gifts to everyone. Don't just let certain people with certain more flashy gifts have all the control and all the power. Such a good, good advice. But to do that, we have to understand how God gives gifts. So what does he say? Look at this, verse 4. Now, there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. Now, if you've got your own Bible, or if you've even got a pew Bible, go ahead and circle Spirit, but the same Spirit. Then circle Lord, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God. And it produces each gift in each person. Now, why do I want you to circle those three? This is an interesting... Why does he use three different titles? Why does he say Spirit? Why does he say Lord? Why does he say God? This, I believe, is one of the very earliest Trinitarian proclamations that we have. Written probably about 20 years after 
Jesus' ascension. And here we have Paul, an apostle, speaking about the triune God. God as spirit, God as Lord, which is the name often he gives to Christ, so God the Son. So we got God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, and God, who is often how we talk about God the Father, the Heavenly Father. So right here we have something beautiful, a Trinitarian formula. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And look at this. Why, why, why does he do this? Why does he go, like, it's not, he's not just trying to teach Trinitarian theology. That's not what he's doing. He's trying to show you something very important about these gifts and why there's different gifts in one body. Because, what's he saying? You figured it out yet? There's one God who himself expresses with different gifts. So when we as the church have unity and diversity, we actually represent God well. Isn't that beautiful? God in himself, there is three in one. There is unity and diversity. It's one of the most beautiful truths about our God. And so God shares that with us and wants us as his body to look like, wants the body to be like the head, three in one, of a, a unity in diversity, diversity in unity. And so that's what you're going to see then Paul talking about in the next few verses. Unity matters, Paul will say. And diversity matters. Meaning, let's not try to make everyone exactly the same. Because even in the Godhead, three in one, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are, yes, the same, but they're also different. So why are we trying to make everybody the same with the same gifts in the church? You're not representing God. So that's what he's going to say. So look, look at it. Now, verse 12. Verse 12. Actually, before we get to verse 12, I want, I want to just look at verse 7. This is such an important verse. He says this. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And then he's going to list off several gifts. Now, I don't think the list of gifts he gives is comprehensive because we have other gifts in Romans 12, a list in Romans 12 that Paul also wrote that at least are worded different. And we have other gifts in Ephesians chapter 4 that are different. And so he's giving an example a spattering, if you will, of, of some of the gifts, just to show you how many gifts there are. Um, but every gift, he said, is a manifestation of the Spirit, and it's given to each person for, circle four, for what? The common good. That's so important. It's a manifestation of the Spirit, meaning... For everyone who receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Bible says that God will send the Holy Spirit to be with them, to live inside their heart. Again, a divine mystery, how does that work? But that's the truth. And the Spirit will never leave you. No matter how much rubble you pile up to kind of mute His call in your life, He's there. And so when you have a spiritual gift, it's a manifestation of the Spirit that you already have. You see what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that a spirit will come from outside and give you the gift. It's a manifestation of what you already have when you came to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's so important. Now, the Holy Spirit will give you fresh fillings at times for specific tasks and specific moments of your life. But what he's talking about, spiritual gifts are a manifestation of the one spirit that we are all given when we choose to follow Jesus, when we give and surrender our life to him and we are baptized with the Spirit one time. Now we have it. Now the manifestation happens of these spiritual gifts. And the gifts are always for the common good. So any gift that's only for my benefit, I should be very suspicious of. Now, I just want to say, side note, Paul will say this later in, in chapter 14. He will say, for instance, the gift of tongues is for personal benefit. It's like a personal 
conversational language between you and God, and that should be used more in your personal time. So that is a gift that God gives, but it's for your own edification. And Paul's talking about here in the community of Christ, when we use our gifts in community, they should be for the common good, not just for ourselves. I just want to give a, sh- a shout out to Shruthi. Shruthi has started a coffee ministry at Sedaris Church. She's only been here, what, six months, a year, I can't, two months, <laughs> okay, two, so talk to her, ask her what she did to find this out. She started a coffee ministry at Sedaris, join her team, two months in, guess what, she hates coffee. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I mean, hate might be too strong a word. She dislikes coffee and will not drink it, even if we paid her. And she started a coffee ministry. What's my point? She's using gifts for the common good that God put something on her heart, not for her own gain or because she just really wanted the coffee game to step up at Sedaris so that she could have good coffee on Sunday mornings, but for the common good because she knows all y'all are addicted and she's working on it, and she's trying to help you, but she knows we got to wean you off, okay? So the coffee's a little light. That's what she's doing. She's trying to help you with your addiction. For the common good. And so he's going to go and, and talk about a whole list of these gifts. He talks about a message of wisdom. That's like giving wise counsel, sometimes spontaneous And I just heard your situation. God's put this on my heart. I'm going to give you a message of wisdom. It talks about a message of knowledge. That's slightly different than wisdom. That's that's like clear understanding of things that are difficult to understand and being able to communicate that to others so that they might understand better. He talks about the gift of faith. Now we all are given faith. Otherwise, we could not believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior because we have not seen him raised from the dead personally, but God gives us a gift. So we all have the, a gift of faith, but there's a special gift of faith, and you probably know some people that are like this. It's having simple trust, even in complex matters, that is clearly supernatural because for others, they'd be drawn into doubting, but for some reason, there's certain people that God gives this gift of faith. For what? For the common good, because when you're doubting, you know who you should run to? Your friend who you know has the supernatural gift of faith. They might not be able to explain all of your doubts away. Go find somebody with a message of knowledge that has a gift. But they can tell you, don't give up. God is with you. Trust me, I know, in the Spirit. It's a gift of faith. It's a special gift, even though we all have faith when we become followers of Jesus. Then there's the gift of healing. Then performing miracles. Then the gift of prophecy. What's the gift of prophecy? Some of these are difficult to know how they'll play out in particular. Just look at me real quick. Paul will talk about this in chapter 14. So if you want to turn over to chapter 14, 25, he'll give us a little insight here. Paul's talking in this section about the difference between the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And he'll say this of prophecy, verse 25. He'll say this, the secrets of his heart will be revealed. By who? By somebody with the gift of prophecy. Meaning people with the gift of prophecy have this, perhaps the spontaneous ability to, to see past the masks that you put up and to know what's true in your heart. And that's a supernatural gift that God's given them. Again, in the next verse, it'll talk about when then, brothers and sisters, should you do this? When you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a teaching or a revelation or speaking in another tongue or an interpretation. And there, that word revelation. So the gift of prophecy is to have some special revelation given by God, either about an individual person or about the word of God, some special revelation that could only come about through God opening your eyes. So some people have that special gift. Not everybody. It's a great gift. But it's just as good as all the other gifts. They're all important. And then he goes on to say, distinguishing between the spirits, Again, in Corinth, super important. Are we talking about, there's some spiritual mojo going on over there at that idol worship. Is that from the Lord? Because that's something, and it's powerful. It's not nothing. But that's not the same as this spirit. Some people have that gift of discerning the spirits. Then there's the gift of tongues, he says. And then interpreting tongues, because tongues is an angelic language. 
So others can't understand what's being said unless there's somebody there to interpret. We'll get into that in a, in a couple weeks. So he goes through this long list, but the key here is all of the gifts are a manifestation of the spirit that's given at your decision to follow Christ. And it should be used when we come together, not for personal gain, but for the common good. If it's not used for that, then you're either using your gift wrong or it's not a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, then Paul's going to go into this back and forth about, uh, we'll just look at it. Verse 12, he says, For just as a body is one and has many parts, and all parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also in Christ. So he's just, he's just using some philosophy here to say, unity, one body, that's what we are as the church. We're one body. Then he's going to go on and say, but diversity is really important too. We don't need a bunch of feet. We just need two feet. <laughs> we don't need a bunch of elbows. We need two elbows. We don't need a bunch of eyes. That's freaky. We need two eyes. You know, so we need all the parts though. And he says, all of us were baptized into one body. So why are we acting as if some people got to drink from some special drink? One body. When we do baptisms at Green Lake, this last time, Jason was baptized, Guy was baptized, Ashley was baptized. In what? The same body of water. So if they got any disease, they got the same disease. <laughs> Green Lake's not always clean, okay? But we always check, for sure, uh, before. We have Ryan sitting there for a couple minutes, and then we just... <laughs> Check it out a week later. Everything good? All good? No. So, same body of water, same baptism into the same body, into the body of Christ. So stop acting like some people got some special elixir when they were baptized. We all got baptized in the same spirit, Paul's saying. So let's stop creating hierarchies in the church of who's got the better gift and who's got the worst gift. That's what he's saying. Um, the world is trying to convince us of something that's untrue. That it's better that we all are exactly the same. Now you say, like, I don't think they're trying to do that. I think they're trying to do the opposite and saying we should value everybody. Not quite. It sounds like that, which is why we jump on board. But actually, what they're doing, whether they know it or not, is they're actually trying to remove distinction. And they're actually removing distinction that God put into the world. So friends, the Holy Spirit is not exactly the same as God the Father. God the Father is not exactly the same as God the Son. Yes, they are one. They are all equal of value, equal divinity. But there's distinction within the Godhead just as there's distinction within the church and it's God-given and it's good and it brings beauty and life to the painting, not ugliness. The ugliness comes when we're led by a spirit that does not the spirit of God. That's the argument Paul's trying to make. We complement each other when we know our gifts and we live into them. Not when we wish we had other people's gifts or try to take some person's gift or hate our own gift. That does not bring beauty to the picture God is painting. Just be very careful because the world is accidentally removing this beauty from the church. So we've got to ask tough questions. What does this mean? What is God asking me to do? How does he want me to use my gift in the church? We've got to ask him because he's got something way more beautiful than we could ever put together in our own minds. So here's the paradox. And this can be one of the ways that we start to remove unpeculiar wisdom from the church. We gotta ask the hard question. So if I asked you, like, would you rather be an eye or a stomach? Who says I? Okay. Now you all know I'm doing a trick here, so who says stomach? Okay. So just a lot of people that don't want to be a part of this analogy at all. <laughs> Which is totally fine. I get it, because you have no idea where it's going. Okay. I think we like, man, the eye's pretty cool. I mean, the eye is crazy cool. I have no idea how it works, but I know I can see you, 
in brilliant, well, if I had my glasses on, I could see you in brilliant HD. It's really cool, right? And the stomach's like, I don't really know how that works either, but it seems kind of gross. <laughs> okay. Now, which one could you live without? The eye or the stomach? The stomach, or the eye. <laughs> you could live without the eye. You could live without both eyes, but you couldn't live without your stomach. Hmm. Hmm, is that what Paul's saying here? Like, you guys actually don't know how to value things. You look on the outside, and you look at, this technology is amazing, the eyeball technology is awesome, the stomach technology is gross. So old school. <laughs> but if you really knew, if you talked to a doctor, they'd say, you'd probably want to be a stomach. It's really important. It's less honorable in the world's eyes, but actually it's the greater gift. You see? I think we do the same thing. We look at what Dave does and we might think, wow. And most of you are like, <laughs> maybe not thinking that, but imagine you were thinking that. I would tell you you're wrong. I would tell you you're wrong. God's just given me this particular gift for this particular church, for this particular time, and I just have said yes until he tells me don't say yes anymore. It's not the greater gift. You could live without me. There's some people that are part of this church you couldn't live without. Now, my gift's important. I'm not saying mine's not important. Because for us to be the fullness of what God is, everyone has to say yes to their gift, including me. But I'm replaceable. Some of you aren't replaceable. You have the greater gift. So Paul's saying we don't quite see it right we don't quite understand how this works. And so then he's going to go, and you kind of understood his analogy he uses of who can, nobody can say to the foot, I don't need you and all that stuff. You get that. Then he's going to go into what seems to be a hierarchy of gifts. Let me just explain that. He says, now you are the body of Christ, verse 27, and individual members of it. So don't get lost in the corporate nature of the collective. You are also an individual. This is a beautiful part of the teaching of God. He never wants you to be erased. He engages each one personally. That you are an individual matters to God, but that you are part of a collective also matters. It's like all the best things, all in one. Yes, it's all, all the good things are God's ideas, and we can have them all if we understand his way of putting it together. So you are individual members, and God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, which means sent ones, I don't think here he's talking about big A apostle like Apostle Paul. He could be. I think he's talking about the sent ones. Then second, prophets. Then third, teachers. Next, miracles. Then the gifts of healing. Then he starts stops numbering them because at this point it's like you get the point. Healing, helping, administration, administering, an important gift, often unseen, behind the scenes, making sure there's enough money to pay for the bills and all that stuff's important. This sounds like the stomach. Like, it's gross to have to do the finances of a church. <laughs> but it will die if nobody does it. The gift of administration. It's important. Then various kinds of tongues. He says, are all apostles? No, are all prophets? No, are all teachers? So he's saying, of course not everybody can be all of these things. Not everybody has every gift. He'll go on to say, everybody has at least one gift. And if that gift is administration, praise God for that gift. We need that gift. Otherwise, we will die as a church. We can find somebody else to teach and preach. But if we aren't sound internally through the gift of administration, we will fall apart and we will die. Maybe not tomorrow, maybe not in a year, but in 10 years, we won't be around. So he's not saying here, apostles are the best, teachers are the second best, or prophets are the second best, teachers. Here's what he's doing. Back to the band analogy, marching band. Let's say we wanted to start a marching band like Will Fenton is encouraging people to do and he'll get a small commission. Don't worry about that. His reviews are good. <laughs> okay, so you gotta buy all the equipment, right? Think about this. There's an order to that. We can't just tell people that have the gift of playing the trumpet or the tuba or the cymbals, hey, just show up at this park and we're just gonna jam. You won't have a marching band. You could have a lot of noise, but you won't have a marching band. 
So what is the order of events that need to happen to make a marching band a real good marching band? First, you need an apostle or apostles. You need sent ones. Who, who are these people in the church? Church planters. <laughs> you need somebody crazy enough to say, let's start a marching band that goes to a place that doesn't have a marching band and says, we're going to start a marching band. That's all apostle is. We're going to go from here with the things we've received and take it somewhere else and help others have that too. So you need a founding member, a founding vision. You need an apostle or apostles, the sent ones. That's the first thing you need. What's the second thing you need? Well, you probably need some composers. What kind of music are we going to be about? What revelation is God giving us to who we are to be as a marching band. Maybe they write some songs. Maybe they compose. Maybe they work on the choreography. But they have some revelation of something that wasn't, and they have some revelation. This is prophets in the church. People who God gives special revelation to about what he wants this particular community to be about. Now you need the crazy person first, (laughs) the church planner. Then you need some prophets to come along and support that crazy person. Because crazy people aren't good to be by themselves. Ryan always calls me. He says, dude, you have crazy church planner energy. Stop it. <laughs> it's like, this is a Tuesday, man. Slow it down. And be like, yeah, but. He's like, no. Let's get lunch. Okay. So that's the second thing you need. What's the third thing you need? Well, guess what? Prophets can be a little bit out of control, too, sometimes. I was having a new thought, a new revelation, a new idea. You need some teachers. So the composers compose it there, and then you need some teachers that are able to understand the vision, understand the composition, and then teach the music to the musicians, right? If you want a marching band. So some people that that have that gift of of breaking down complex composition and teaching it to the individual parts so that they can use their gifts to thrive. It's the same thing in the church, teachers. The gift of teachers that can understand God's word, complex theology, teach it to people who are new to the faith or new to the band so that they too can participate wholeheartedly with their gifts. And then the numbering stops, right? Next, you got miracles, and then you got gifts of healing. What's that? Next, you got to find a tuba player and a trumpet player and a cymbal guy. And this shows you that I wasn't in a marching band. Oh, saxophone. My dad played saxophone. Flute. My mom played flute. My mom and dad met in a marching band, by the way. Part of why I love marching bands. Wouldn't be here without them. None of us would. Be real with yourself. Okay. So you see what he's doing? That's what he's talking about when he's saying order. Like, there's a natural order to these things. And it doesn't mean the apostles are more important or that the teachers are more important. It just means you need order in the community of God in order to thrive. I love that. That's what Paul is doing here. Unity matters. Diversity matters. Order matters. Thank God for all those things. So I want you to know this. More than anything... I want you to know that you have a spiritual gift. You have an instrument to play, or a baton to twirl, or maybe you're a drum major and you're good at giving orders. Whatever your gift is, you have one if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Spirit lives within you and will manifest a spiritual gift if you'll allow Him. So knowing that you have a gift, here's three important takeaways. One, thank God for your gift. Thank him for it, whatever it is. Remember what life was like before you had the Spirit. Some folks know what Dave is like when he's not, before he had the Spirit. Some know what Dave is not when he's not operating in the Spirit. You guys get to see me operating in the Spirit most often because this is one of my spiritual gifts. I'm not the same dude when I'm not letting the Spirit manifest. And so I thank God that I get to experience life with him and life without him. Do you thank God for your gift? The second thing, use your gift. Don't just thank him that you have at least one gift. Use it for the common good. Because if you don't use your gift, friends, you are, it's not just you don't get to feel full of the Spirit. That's not what it's about, feeling full of the Spirit. If you don't use your gift, you are robbing a blessing from another child of God. 
Because God gave you a gift for the common good. So you got to think, hey, if I'm living the lone wolf Christian, you are stealing from God's children. Because he's given you a gift to use in the gathering, not just on Sundays, but anytime the body is together. And if you don't use it, you're stealing from God's children. I don't want to be stealing from God, so I'm going to use my gift. So use it. Third, don't covet other people's gifts. You can ask God for it. Say, God, I'd be great. I'd love to have that gift. But don't covet other people's gifts. God gives gifts as he chooses. He's going to give you some gift and somebody else a different gift. Fight with all your will to not covet other people's gifts. One, it dishonors God. It dishonors his goodness and his generosity because he gave you a gift. But you're always looking at the other gift that he gave somebody else. And two, it may lead you to fake a gift that you don't have. And that's even more, that's even more hurtful to the church of God. If I didn't have a gift of teaching and I was up here faking teaching, you guys would be getting really bad teaching. <laughs> Might be able to fake it for a while, but over time, you would not actually experience life. So don't fake a gift. The way to avoid faking a gift, don't covet a gift God hasn't given you. You can ask him for it and welcome it if he wants to give it to you, but don't covet somebody else's gift because you might just convince yourself that you have it when you don't have it. So where's the gospel in this? Here's where the gospel is. It's, it's tied to this covet piece. The gospel, if, if you don't understand the gospel, you will easily fall into coveting other people's gifts or elevating certain gifts above other gifts. Because if you truly understand what God has done for you, that when you did not deserve anything except for eternal separation from him, he sent his son into this world to take on himself your sin and the debt that you had incurred because of it on himself on the cross, if you don't understand that, that you don't deserve a single thing from God, and he gave you that, and not only did he give you that, but he sent the Spirit to dwell with you, and then not only did he give you that, he gave you at least one gift that you get to use in the service of his family. If you don't understand that, then you will begin to covet. Because you'll think it's about you and not about God. The gospel keeps us from coveting because when we realize that while we were still sinners, deserving nothing, Christ died for us, we will be thankful that we even get to put his name on our lips. God, we need his help, don't we? We need his help understanding our gifts, we need his help being thankful for the gifts he's given us. We need his help to not hide behind other people's gifts. Listen, if you've ever said, I think I have a gift, I think God wants me to use it here at Sedaris, but if I don't use it, Dave's got a pretty good gift. He'll probably cover up for it. Shame on you. You will kill this church and you'll kill me. I can't do it. I've only got so much. He's given you guys even more. Don't hide behind anyone's gifts, whether it's mine, or Ryan's, or Tylene's, or George. Don't do it, friends. You'll kill us, and you'll kill this church. We are one body. We need every member of this body. Don't hide behind anyone's gift. Ask God to show you your gift. Use your gift. Thank him for the gift so that we might become fully alive, that we might make a holy noise unto the Lord. Please don't hide your gift. The two words for spirit. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's ruach. In the New Testament, it's pneuma. Guess what both mean? Wind, breath. If we want to be the kind of marching band God wants us to be, 
we got to know, instruments with no air are worthless, but instruments with God's air are priceless. When you allow God to breathe through you and the gifts and the instruments he's given you, when you let him breathe his resurrection air through your lungs and into your instrument, you will change your family's life. You will change your workplace. You will change your friend group and will change this city and will change this world. All by letting God show us what our gift is and then using it. Let's pray.